Okay, everybody, welcome back, or welcome to the next episode of The Great Divide, and this is episode uh, number, what what episode is this, Fine, I can't remember. <laughs> is, believe is this it or four? not, it's our fifth anniversary. It's our fifth anniversary? Wow. Actually, it's our third, but um, there you go. You're I right. I think we have to start over. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're right. We probably do. The, the, first, the first couple of ones that I did are kind of like uh, the first version of Big Country with with the Wishard brothers in it and uh, and with Clive Parker in the band. So <laughs> they're going to be like a Fantastic. footnote. They're going to be like a footnote to the podcast. So now that you're on board, this is like the the official version of the podcast. So whatever episode it is, um, <laughs> we are we are back and we're ready to discuss probably one of the most divisive albums in the Big Country catalog, and that's No Place Like Home, which came out in 1991. And we're going to talk about it track by track at some point. It won't be this episode because before we get to the whole track by track analysis of this album, um, both Svein and I thought it was important that we kind of set up the way the climate of the band and the climate of music and and the climate in which this album was created and and where it sprang forth because it was really an interesting time for big country i mean they they had broken up and then they got back together and mark brzecki left the band or or did he leave and we've got some stuff to talk about uh regarding that as well but um before i do anything else let me just introduce fine uh he is from norway as you probably know by now if you're a regular listener to this and I am in America on the East Coast, and it's like 100 degrees Fahrenheit here today. Supposed to get up to 105 tomorrow. Luckily, I have uh, air conditioning, and I'm sitting in the Great Divide Big Country Podcast Studios, gigantic palatial studios, as I record this. And Svein, what is what is it like in Norway right now? Well, I'm sitting in the cruddy garden shed. <laughs> uh, the European branch is on a budget, but uh, I think uh, we have some pretty warm days, but it can't compete with you guys. I think we have a we have temperatures in the 20s, and uh, obviously it's centigrade over here, so that's your math. Right, yeah, I, I, I have to figure that out at some point, especially now <laughs> that I'm talking with you. But um, good. Well, I mean, before we get started and delve into this, and I think Svein can add to this as well because I'm sure he agrees, we just want to thank everyone for the great feedback. I mean, we've, we've gotten a, a really a lot of fantastic feedback from people from putting these podcasts together, and it's been really rewarding to see. I mean, I had the idea to do this basically because I just was kind of getting back into big country and and sort of that whole period of being sad whenever I heard the music, it was it was kind of passing, thankfully. And um, I just kind of got back into another period of listening to the band and really enjoying it again. And and as I said in the first podcast, me being a fan of podcasts, I wanted to do one on Big Country. So now that Svine is, is on board, you know, I think it's even better. And we just want to really thank everyone for, for writing. A lot of people have talked about how they've listened to these things while they're out and about, while they're, while they're walking or going to work or whatever, which is exactly when I listen to podcasts and have listened to them in, in the past. So that, that makes us feel really good. And a uh, couple, couple people have offered some questions for this particular podcast that we will probably get into too. But, um, but yeah, so thanks. Thanks for all the feedback. And Svein, is there anything you wanted to say regarding that or? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm super impressed by all the feedback. I, I never expected to to see so much, and uh, people are really sharing their own stories and what big country means to them. And uh, uh, like ourselves, uh, 
hearing that they get back into the band and how this this podcast helps them get back into the band that that's really really cool so uh thank you guys uh, everything is read uh, i think we can even say that nothing is deleted everything goes into the bank and uh we might pull stuff out at the strangest times uh there will be topics coming on and maybe down the road we like to integrate some of this feedback and maybe have some people on so uh it's all kept it's all read uh, it uh, it means a lot so thank you so much i think the bulk of this will be talking about kind of 1990 and what was happening with the band then but i'm going to start at around 1989 and back then i had thought the big country had broken up uh you know peace in our time had come out in america it, it did not do well over here and it, i know it really didn't do well anywhere from what i from what i gathered you know it had some minor hits and the band made sort of a sort of an impression with their trip to the Soviet Union. But generally speaking, in America, big country was really falling off the radar of a lot of people. And I think a lot of that had to do with peace in our time over here, which is ironic since uh, as as we've learned over the years, the album was actually made to appeal more to an American audience. And it, it really ended up losing them a lot of that. So. I was in a band at the time, and yeah, I love Big Country, obviously, and I remember a friend of mine who was who was playing in another band that was opening up a show for us. He told me that Big Country had broken up, and I was really disappointed. I can't even remember where he heard that, um, but you got to remember, you know, back then there was no internet. There was no way to follow the bands, uh, whatever they were doing, unless you joined the fan club. So I didn't have any way to clarify what he said, but I just knew that I couldn't get any information on Big Country. Anytime I went to a music magazine, I I never saw anything on them. Didn't see them being played on MTV anymore, and you know I had no way to follow what they were doing, and so I believed him. So before the show that we played, he and I both played some acoustic stuff, and if I I've got a recording of this somewhere, so I might throw the introduction on here if I can find it. But we we both did. We were both Big Country fans, and we we did come back to me. And I, I dedicated it to Big Country, and I said something like, It's a song by the best band that ever was. It is no more. I was kind of broken up about it and sad about it, but I thought, you know, well, they, they had a, a lot of good albums and I always listened to them. And then that same guy, strangely enough, back uh, around the same time, maybe a few months later, um, came to me and he said, look what I've got. And it was two 12-inches. It was a 12-inch for Heart of the World and the 12-inch for Save Me. And this was new stuff. I was excited. I remember looking at the picture, and, and the first thing that struck me was – I can't remember which one this was on, but there was a picture of the band. And the first thing that hit me was, you know, where is Mark? Mark is not here. Who's this guy? And uh, so later figured out it was Pat Ahern. But um, so I, I'll get into my reactions to Heart of the World and all that at some point. But so it's fine. What's your what's your what was your uh, fan relationship to Big Country at the time? I mean, did you know they were still around? Were you expecting a new album? What was kind of your uh, feeling for the band around 1989? Yeah, they were not uh a lot in media, that's for sure. Uh, there was a strange thing that happened uh, around Peace in our time. Uh, I saw that album just appear in the shops. And I said, wow, a new big country album. So I picked it up and uh, the reaction was, this is gloss. 
this is uh, this is not really what I expected from the band. And uh, looking at the picture of the band, I saw the picture of them inside that album first, and I saw Bruce, and wow, you know, heavy metal Bruce. Look at that hairdo, you know, it's it's hair metal Bruce. <laughs> so so I had some hopes that wow, you know. Hair metal Bruce, you know they're going to rock out on this album, but no, sadly no. And uh, of, of course, Tony looked totally Rastafarian, and uh, hey. Stuart as clean cut as ever, and uh, Mark had his mullet, so he had the mullet for most of the edits, I think. So that didn't say much. But um, they appeared on national TV to promote Peace in Our Time, and interestingly enough, they did it as a three piece. Uh, they were, it, it was sort of a pop show and they mimed to peace in our time there also was a quick interview with Stuart, where the no brain host said oh the country new album peace in our time so Stuart, how do you like peace in our time and <laughs> well i think it's a product of us just playing live in the studio and that shows and that comment has never made sense to me it doesn't sound very live in the studio at all and then they go on stage to mime to peace in our time and and bruce is awol so it's Stuart, Tony, and Mark, and uh, I think, wow, you know what's happened, you know. So where, Bruce, where, so Bruce, Bruce wasn't there. Oh wow. So, so, so Bruce wasn't there, and I thought, wow, Bruce has left the band, and I had no idea. There were obviously no articles or anything to back me up. So uh, I could sort of see the writing on the wall that wow, you know, he he was discontent. You know, he grew his hair. He's heavy metal now. He he can't stand for this <laughs> stuff. So uh, and the next thing I know is when No Place Like Home popped up in the shop, much like Peace in Our Time. And wow. again, it's a three-piece, but now it's a different three-piece than I thought it would be, and Mark is gone. So uh, the lack of information, uh, I think, is uh, very much of the time. Not being sure what was going on. Uh, I definitely didn't hear that they broke up. Then again, I didn't hear that they were still going. So right. uh, it was just, you know, first of all, thankful to see anything at all in the shops. And then uh, being sort of surprised or confused with some of what we saw, maybe it wasn't what you expected, but uh, that's uh, that's another side to the story. You know, when my friend brought me these 12 inches of, of Heart of the World and saved me, I was super excited. I was I was very curious as to why Mark didn't seem to be in the band, but I thought, okay, Heart of the World, here we go. This is the first step to the new big country or whatever it's going to be, and I put it on. And the first thing I hear is that uh, you guys are gonna have to pardon me, but the first thing I hear is that woohoo, <laughs> and then ow, and I thought, oh, what the hell is this? And it, it just, man. In fact, my friend had heard that, heard it before he gave it to me, and he said it's not very good. And I put it on, and yeah, it it just that hit me so so poorly. And um, it's it's not that I hated the song. I, I think there are some decent elements to that song, but there was something about that song that just it it seemed kind of cheesy to me. I mean, the the lyrics seemed like they were kind of forced, and and they weren't the kind of lyrics that I was used to hearing from Stewart. The um the the singing from Stewart was exactly what I was hoping he wouldn't do because, you know, when I heard "Peace in Our Time," uh. The first thing I ever heard from that was King of Emotion, and I didn't even recognize it as Big Country. I heard it on the radio and didn't think it was Big Country, and that was because of the way Stewart was singing. And I'm, I'm convinced that he was coached or something to sing in a more uh, – either a more American way or to, to lessen his accent a little bit. I'm, I'm convinced of that, but there was even more of that on the Heart of the World song. I mean it didn't really sound like Stewart's voice. 
but there were you know little flourishes of the big country sound there was the the militaristic drumming there were the little melodic solo parts and and some other things so it wasn't a complete disaster but just that that beginning singing part just really ugh, it rubbed me the wrong way and then I put on Save Me, and I, I was much more pleased with Save Me, I remember. I thought, okay, this is this is more like it. It's more what I expected from Big Country, and um, it's it, it wasn't a song that blew me away or, or you know, I made me feel like, oh, this is better than anything they've ever done. But it was – I enjoyed it. I liked it and, it, and it had more of a traditional Big Country feel, I thought, than Heart of the World. We'd like to play a song for you now which is for the lost souls among you. This is a new single. It's called Save Me.
interesting what you're saying because to me it's almost the opposite. Really? Wow. Uh, yeah, it's um, to start with "Save Me." I, I I really don't like that song at all. Uh, I was I was disappointed even after an piece in our time to hear it. It it simply isn't a highlight to me. It's uh, uh, starting with the intro is just drags on. It goes on, and uh, I know we talked about Promised Land and how that intro is similar, mm-hmm. except in Promised Land it really works. It's yeah. uh, it's superb. Uh, with Save Me, it doesn't work. It drags on. It isn't uh, atmospheric. It's long-winded. Well, I, agree with, uh, I agree with that completely. In fact, yeah, so, that that intro is like – that intro, I, I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of the things that really – I kind of like the song in spite of that intro because that intro sums up a lot of where the band was going. I mean, as you say, Promised Land, the intro kind of worked because it was that more melodic, guitar, Scottish, Celtic feel to it. And suddenly Stewart is doing like a, a bad heavy metal impression and playing all these blues licks and blues scales. And it's not what I wanted to hear. But, uh, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, no problem. I think uh, in hindsight, it's a little backlash from peace in our time. I know Stewart said in some interviews that, you know, it, it felt great to play some bloody lead guitar for a change. <laughs> <Again>. <laughs> right. right. So, so I think he was a little let loose and maybe too much let loose. So to have that as a lead-off single for for the greatest hits. You know, it, it's very typical sometimes. They, people have to make new tracks for the greatest hits, and they're not as good as the hits on the album. So right. uh, so the new stuff would never have fit on the greatest hits if it hadn't been written for it. So, uh, so that's definitely one of those. Uh, but uh, in spite of that single, that album did fairly well for them. So, uh, and, and it did show them that they were sort of back on track. And, exactly. Uh, Bit organic. Yeah, in fact, the album it went to number two, which shocked me, and it sold 300,000 copies in the UK through a big country greatest hits. But that's another thing that that always confuses me about this time. I mean, because through a big country came out and it did so well, and it was the classic big country that mostly that was featured on that album, and it almost seemed like that should have been a sign to them that that's what people wanted from them. you know, because that album did so well, and they come back with something that's so different. But uh, I'm I'm going to read something really short here from this Alan Glenn book. Uh, if you guys don't know what I'm talking about, it's the book by Alan Glenn called Stuart Adamson in a Big Country. It's not a fantastic book on on Stuart Adamson and and the band, mainly because the band had no input in it. But there are some really interesting things here, and that I find interesting, and some quotes that kind of chronicle the different periods of the band. And here's since we're talking about Save Me. Um, let's see. This is a quote from Stuart Adamson when the song Save Me was released. And he says, after Mark Brzezicki left the band, Stuart Adamson says, I think it is very much the end of an era, and the last album was a turning point for us. The band's changed a great deal as well, especially my attitude towards it. For the first time in a couple of years, I've got a clear idea of what I want to do. With the Peace in Our Time album, I think we tried things that didn't work for us, and in retrospect, working with Peter Wolf, a big American producer, was a tangent to the plot. Um, on the future of the band, he believed Save Me, the first track on the Through a Big Country Greatest Hits album, was merely a hint of what was to come. And he says, I wanted to create a blues-come-mission type of feel, uh, the mission being a band that was, I guess, fairly popular at the time, uh, like a gospel song, but not done totally serious. And it says, on its release at the beginning of May, Save Me failed to reach the top 40, stalling at number 41. 
the band blamed Radio 1, which had given it only limited airtime. So what, what about Heart of the World for you? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, Heart of the World came much later to me, so I, I didn't see it as the next step towards what would come next. That was just uh, catching up on a bunch of B-sides I hadn't heard or, or non-album tracks. Right. So uh, so I quite liked it. I think, um, you know, I, I don't get uh, as scared as you do by the woo-woos and <laughs> those things. Yeah, they horrify uh, it, it, It's definitely a more... Uh, a rock-oriented song than you'd find on either Peace in Our Time or No Place Like Home. It's uh, it's it's more big country the rock band, uh, so yeah. it remind it almost reminds me more of what came in the mid '90s to some degree. I like the melody. I like how the uh, how ambitious the chorus is. It's very ambitious, and how he sings it. It it it's high and it's slow. And it, it uh, is, yeah, definitely. So he stretches a bit as a vocalist on this song, and uh, the guitar riff is uh, more sparking than it was on Save Me to compare those two songs again. Mm. So, so to me, it's definitely the favorable song. Baby, you can dance back. 
what I did at that time, I think through a big country, the greatest hits came out and I got that on an import. And, you know, so I was thinking, okay, lots going on with big country. Obviously they're, they're doing something. Um, and I, I thought I've got to find out what's going on. And, and of course there was no internet, as we said, there's no email. So I did really probably the first, the first time I've done this since joining the kiss army back in the seventies, I looked on the back of the record and I saw an address that said for information, for fan club information, send whatever here. So I sent a letter to the fan club. So I'll never forget this one day, uh, I I was going to go to a family reunion of some sort and I got this letter and it was from, it was an overseas letter that had airmail stamped on it and it said country club. And I thought, oh, this is it. This is great. And I was so excited. I mean, it's fun to kind of think about those days where, you know, whatever came in, you really cared about what came in the mail. These days, pretty much all that comes in the mail are bills and you you rarely get anything cool in the mail anymore. (laughs) You know, but back then it was like the mailbox was was hollowed ground. So this thing came in the mail and it was new big country information and I opened it up. And I looked at the – it was just like a flyer at this point saying that I was now subscribed and I was going to get the next issue. But it had a, a, an update on what the band was doing, and it had it had a uh, print uh, picture of the new band with Pat Ahern in it, and it was autographed by the band. I'm sure it was not – I'm sure it was copied of the autograph, but I still have that actually. And um, so it had the name of the new drummer, so I knew that. And then it said the band is is preparing to release their new album, No Place Like Home, and here's the track listing. And I thought, oh, you know, this is great. And I looked through the track listing. Now, I'm a guy who always judges. Uh, I, I before I hear an album, if I see a track listing, I judge a lot of the of a song based on the title of the song. I know that sounds strange, but if I see a cliched song title, you know, like. Uh, song called rain or something there you know there are a million songs called rain if i see a song title like that i kind of get a feel for okay this song might not be that original or it might not be great or whatever and big country always had the most interesting song titles i mean song titles that i'd never heard before song titles that just the titles in and of themselves made me think like the great divide pearl man close action all that stuff so I'm reading the, the song titles with great interest of this album, and I see we're not in Kansas, and I think that sounds kind of cool. I see Republican Party Reptile, and I thought that sounds interesting. And then I get to some other ones that kind of gave me pause. And the first one was, which is ironic because it's probably my favorite song on the album, which I maybe shouldn't reveal at this point, but I will, uh, is Dynamite Lady. I saw Dynamite Lady. Now, I, I had no idea what a Dynamite Lady was at the time as far as what it was in that album as a circus performer who blows themselves up the only thing i knew about the word dynamite was besides you know what it is is an adjective that we had in america in the 70s where people would say it, it was kind of like a synonym for great people would say hey that's dynamite man or they would say that lady is dynamite so when I saw Dynamite Lady, I literally thought that the song title was about a a, a good-looking girl or something, and it was like, "Oh, you're a dynamite lady." And I thought, "Oh, what is that?" And then I saw "Keep on Dreaming," and I thought, "Oh, I don't know about that title. That sounds kind of cliched." And I saw "Into the Fire," and I thought, "I don't know about that title." But then I saw some other ones, and you know, anyway, I know this sounds weird, but that was what was going through my head at the time. And so again, I was kind of thinking what is big country doing and I'm, I'm very excited for the new album but this is kind of making me a little uneasy 
it's uh, it's very interesting and i think what people need to keep in mind is how starved we were for info back in those days so any scrap we got we would pour over it we would put a lot of meaning into it we would obsess over it so uh, so what you do is no less than what any other super fan would do when you get that info and that's all you have and you have to live with that for months before you find out more so uh, so that's part of this thing and that's how it was back in the olden days pre-internet take note of that one kids yeah i, I obviously didn't have the track listing like you did so uh, f- for me uh, there's much less to uh, to mention there in terms of expectations and having anything to look forward to. This was just, wow, you know, when the album appeared. Right. Uh, but uh, before we get into the songs, the, the one thing that struck me, it, it kind of like when I picked up the album from the store, uh, much like Peace in Our Time, you know, on the way home, you, you rip it open and you look at uh, the images and uh, the liner notes and all that stuff. Yep. And uh, this is when the three-piece revealed itself to me. And yes, uh, I had no right. idea of, you know, when did the band become a three-piece? And, wow, you know, Bruce is back, but Mark is gone. And uh, that, that's how I put it together, you know, based on what I knew and what I'd seen on TV and all of those things. So uh, for years and years, this has been one of the big mysteries to me. What happened with Mark? Uh, why did he leave the band? And uh, I recently saw a quote from him where he finally shared some lights on it it's actually a quote from last year but Mm. uh it goes back to the aftermath of peace in our time and all that happened back then which uh is part of the backdrop to no place like home there's no avoiding it and uh there were all kinds of things going on with the band playing in russia and i'm sure that one was a head scratcher to particularly the the american audience uh, the audience that the band tried to appease. And so they made this album that apparently would go over well in America. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, they're touring Russia. <laughs> right. And uh, this goes back to, you know, decades before then. But uh, I think there's always been sort of a Russia on the other side, across the Great Divide, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, from an American perspective. So um, was it alienating? Was it uh, exotic? Uh, how was it seen? There, there, there's all sorts of things there. And uh, I didn't realize this was part of Ian Grant's master plan. And uh, the way he pitched it to uh, Stuart was that Bono had a thing going with Amnesty <laughs> International. I just read this earlier. Yes, yeah. go ahead. And, and Sting had a thing with the rainforests. So uh, actually, the, the fact that they were attached to these causes helped the band's popularity. So... Ian Grant's idea was to have Stewart be a figurehead for culture, East meets West. And uh, Stewart actually bought it. He went for it. So uh, it was maybe trying to see something and maybe Stewart could somehow be involved in that and be a figurehead and get the same profile that Bono got with Amnesty, that Sting got with the Rainforest. So that's interesting. And how that all ended after Russia was Stuart Adamson decided to leave the band mm. which uh, isn't the first time he did he left the band after restless natives yeah and uh it's very interesting in Stu's mind uh he would leave the band he wouldn't say the band is over he would say i leave the band that's in it's open for the others to continue but i don't right. think that was much of an option for them but that's just Stu not being very you know egocentric that's more like i leave the band you guys go ahead i'm done uh, right. but but he did go through that, and uh, Mark uh, felt that the band didn't want to split up, but uh, he knew in his heart that 
this was uh, at le- at the very least Stu needed a break. Uh, he, he was crying out for a break. There was a lot of pressures going on, and the, the Russian thing didn't work out as they thought. And uh, he was missing his family a lot too. I, I think that's what he said in that quote that he was like really missing his children. And uh, yes, that seems to be a, a common theme with Stuart because I, I know he left the skids at one point. Um, you know when his son was being born or around that time. Um, yeah. And then he left around restless natives, as you said, and, and then again here. So yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So evidently when, uh, when there's extra pressure to be out all the time and perform and, uh, opportunities come and you're on the road a lot and eventually you, you need downtime, you need uh, predictability. You need to say this time is off and really off. Please don't add any more stuff to it, which I right. know also happened a few times. So, um, uh, so he did leave the band and write. You know, whenever a big country has had downtime throughout the 80s, uh, Mark is the one who hasn't had a ha- family to go home to. So he did other stuff. He joined other bands. He took live tours. He did session work. He kept himself busy. And when Big Country came back again, when it was time to pick up, then he would be back. So uh, what happened was Stuart left the band. He got a break and they were going to continue again. And then Mark said, oh, but I actually have other commitments now because uh, I yeah. thought we were splitting up. And I thought this time it was more serious than the other times. Uh, and this would be a break. So uh, he never left. And that's something that Mark categorically states these days. He knows there's always a black mark against him, that he's not as interested in the band as uh, the other members because he goes and does other stuff. Right. But uh, that's just him, you know, being a passionate drummer and he doesn't have a family life. So, so that's always been what he has done. And uh, this time that got in the way. And... Uh, uh, and I was I was really interested. Uh, I found that really interesting when you told me about that quote. I went back and read it. I I'd read the article before, but I guess that somehow went over my head or escaped me. But um, yeah, it, it's it's interesting because there was some animosity toward him at the time too. I I know that um, from the band. I mean, I detected. I used to detect some animosity toward toward him. And I'll give you an example of what I mean. Um, I don't know if you've seen the video of the country club convention that was held during that year, 1991. It was it was before. Have you ever seen that before the no, no place? Okay, no. uh, it's very interesting. I've got that, and um, the band does a Q and A before they perform a bunch of the no place like home shows or songs. And someone asks him why did why or asks Stewart why did Mark Brzezicki leave the band? And he says, uh, um, "The best person to ask that would be Mark. To be quite honest, uh, at the moment we're at the uh, uh, the end of our tether with him. Mark agreed to come back and do the album. Fact was desperate to come back and do the record." was used, full of the usual promises about going on tour and doing this and that and then decided to go away and play with a whole load of other people. So we're at the stage now where that sort of commitment isn't any use to us at all. I want to have a solid band of musicians who are involved in what, in what we do constantly and who have the same attitude as us, you know, and I think that's what it's all about. I mean, my personal attitude to it is, uh, at the time we made the record, I was, I was more than happy for Mark to be there because he's, he's, he's part of my life, you know, and I, I really admire the guys playing and stuff. But it, you just can't go on like that, you know. If you're, you're dedicated to something, you need people around you who are dedicated to the same thing, and that's what we're all about, you know. It's, this is what all this is about. It's not about saying, oh, well, I'd much rather be playing with Proko Harum in mid-year. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. But he's a great player, anyway. And it's very funny, but it's but you could detect the little animosity there. 
And also, I remember in the Country Club magazines, you probably have this since you've still got these. I wish I could find mine. But um, they were talking around that time about songs that they like and favorite songs. And I remember there was a quote from Tony Butler who mentioned one of his favorite songs being Comes a Time. And he says, he says, actually, he says, actually, the only thing that stops me from really loving Comes a Time is the drumming on it. And I, I, re- <laughs> I remember reading that and thinking, well, that's interesting, and that's kind of a low, low blow to Mark. <laughs> and and uh, so, you know, they must have really wanted him back, and the fact that he was sticking to his commitments must have really ruffled their feathers a little bit. But interesting. Yeah, it, it is. And uh, there's actually a question again in the Country Club magazines. They're asking, is Mark now a permanent member again? And uh, I think Stuart says something to the effect that uh, Mark, as usual, can't make up his mind. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So so I think I, uh, I think the door was open for Mark and uh, he had these other commitments. So he was able to do No Place Like Home. Uh, that was actually a last minute thing. Uh, I don't know how many of you are aware of this, but Simon Phillips was for the longest time meant to come in and do No Place Like Home with the band. Oh, no, I didn't even know that. Yeah, and at the last minute, they said, let's try Mark. Let's see if he's available. So that was a last-ditch effort to see if he was available, and he was. So at the last minute, he actually came in and did the drumming, and then he had other commitments again. So that's... Again, the frustrating thing with Mark, you know, he's, uh, you know, in demand. That's, you know, very understandable. You know, why, why wouldn't people want them? Since we're talking about Mark, let's talk a little bit about his first replacement. I mean, he basically had three replacements. That would be Pat O'Hearn, uh, then Chris Bell, who played on the No Place Like Home tour. I guess that wasn't really a replacement because, well, it might have been because I do remember at the time they were trying, they were hoping to get Mark to play on the tour. So. That yeah. didn't happen, obviously. And then, of course, Simon uh, Simon Phillips on the Buffalo Skinners. But but Pat Ahern, this is a guy who, I, I guess the only kind way to say it is that he gets a lot of grief from fans <laughs> to some degree. I mean, I, I certainly don't think he's a bad drummer. I mean, he he made a good stab at a lot of what Mark did, but he just I, I clearly think his wasn't biggest, the caliber. Yeah, I think his biggest mistake was that he dared to replace Mark Brzezicki. Yeah. And where did he come from? I mean, I, I've had a really hard time finding information about him. I've been Googling his name, and I've got like uh, – it, it says he was with – hold on a second. I, I just had it up here, and now I don't have it. But from what, I, from what I remember hearing, he had been a friend or an acquaintance of Tony Butler. And I, I do think that Tony Butler was the guy who was responsible for getting him into the band and, uh, and you know – getting him to be a part of the band, but I don't know where he came from. I mean, I'm looking at his, he actually has a discography and he's played with Carlos Santana. He's played with, he played with big country, obviously. And the other stuff, um, I've never heard of. It says he's a group member of a, of a band called feels like July that released an album in 2008. He apparently is, has a composer credit for, for the university of, of Notre Dame folk choir. He performed on an album with them in 2009 called Songs of Saints and Scholars. Wow. And, then, and then there's somebody named Michaela Kuzia uh, that he played drums for on an album called Never Gonna Look Back in 2009. But if anybody out there has information about Pat Ahern, let us know because who knows? Maybe he would be up for doing an interview sometime. I would love to, to get his perspective on the, that time period. But uh, but yeah, as you were saying, it, yeah, his biggest crime probably was replacing Mark Persecki because there are probably only a handful of people who can do that. And, um, you know, 
he he did a good yeah. good job on some level, but clearly he wasn't up to that standard. If you listen to Save Me, he clearly tries to do a Mark Bersecki impersonation of that it's song. Look away. It's like the look, total rip off <laughs> look away opening. A bit. It's um. Uh, yeah, I think uh, it's kind of like we, we, we talked about our joint interest in KISS and uh, KISS dared replace a couple of uh, original members and uh, or, or have other people cover for them at times. And I think they were under strict instructions to sound just like those members and uh, yeah. make it sound just like the band. And I don't know if Pat was under the same direction for Save Me. Uh, it wasn't an album that came out with a great credit, Pat DeHearn, drummer. It was like right. a small additional musicians and uh, one of uh, a zillion. So, um, so I don't know if if they tried to cover up or if it was seen as a temporary thing. Uh, I think a lot of the drummers you mentioned, certainly Chris Bell, I think, was just covering for the tour. I don't think I, yeah, I don't see him as being envisioned a permanent member in any way, shape, or form. Right, and he was very much like a straightforward rock and roll drummer. I mean, I mean, he played, he tried to play the Mark parts, but you could tell that he was much more of a straight-ahead drummer guy who wasn't at all trying to sound like Mark Brzezicki. And Simon Phillips certainly wasn't trying to sound like Mark Brzezicki. Mm. And, and he was just being Simon Phillips. But yeah, I think you're onto something about the Pat Ahern thing. I mean, I'd have to hear what Pat Ahern sounds like outside of Big Country, but uh, you know, I've never heard him drumming on anything else. But but yeah, I mean, I, I like. You know, I generally like what he was trying to do on the the song "Save Me" and "Heart of the World," and even some of the some of the "No Place Like Home" demos that he played on. But yeah, he just he just didn't have the he didn't have the feel. He didn't have the the power um, of Mark Brzezicki. And there was like a there was a big not not to delve into musician speak here, but there was like um, a real timing issue I felt with him too. Uh, it, whenever they played together, they just seemed to not be able to get into a groove as a band. I mean, it seemed like the timing was off and off, and I don't know. I think, uh, I don't think you're the only one who thinks that. And uh, it would be wrong to probably blame Pat too much for it. Sometimes it's just musicians need to click. Very and true. Uh, maybe he and Tony didn't click. Uh, doesn't mean that uh, Pat sucked as a drummer. It, it just means it didn't click. Right. It might have worked on tour. And uh, I know they went in, into the studio and tried with him because yep. once again, looking back to the Country Club magazines, uh, people asked Stewart and Bruce actually, why did Pat leave the band? And uh, Stewart was quite honest saying Pat left the band because things weren't really working out during the recording. Mm. Uh, and uh, of course, Bruce adds that he was sacked for wearing God socks. So <laughs> That's right. there, there you go. Shot! Just getting back to my first discovery of this album, I guess phase three of my story here is actually, you know, for you, you just walk into the shop one day and you saw No Place Like Home and played it with not with without necessarily any uh, preconceptions of what it was going to be like. But I I had heard Heart of the World, I'd heard Save Me, I, I listened to some live stuff, I kind of had a feel for what they're doing, and you know, I was I, I was starved for the old big country sound basically. Um, after Peace in Our Time, I wanted that magic to come back and it's kind of there on peace in our time but it, at the time as we've talked about it just was a little disappointing so once i got that thing from the country club and i knew the album was coming they didn't give a firm date but they said it, it should be out around this time and at this time you know as i said in one of these other podcasts 
big country albums weren't being released in America anymore. So the only place that I could find them were the import stores. And there was one that was great and it was, but it was unfortunately kind of far away from me, um, almost an, an hour's drive, but I would go there whenever I could. And they often had a lot of big country stuff. And I remember I went there once, um, around the period where I thought the album might be coming out and I knew Republican party reptile was going to be the first single. And I looked through the big country, uh, area and I didn't see anything new. And the guy who ran the store happened to be there. And I just said, you don't by any chance have anything or know when anything new by big country's coming out, do you? And he said, well, you know what? I actually, I just got something in today. And I thought, oh, you're kidding. And it was one of those great moments, you know, where you, your favorite band has got something new and you know what that's like, you know, with our love of Kiss and everything. And especially back in the old days when there was no preview on the internet and you had to go somewhere to actually get this thing. And so I was really incredibly excited. And he came back with the Republican Party Reptile CD single. And uh, the very first thing I noticed was the logo. You know, what is going – I just thought the logo is different. The logo is completely different. You know, it's the lowercase squiggly thing, and it's got the snake on the front with the with the tongue sticking out. And I thought, well, this is interesting. It's not what I would expect from Big Country, but I was willing to go along with it, you know, to, and I was looking forward to it. So I went home, popped the CD in, and – As embarrassing as this might sound all these years later, I, I have to say it's true. I, I literally te- teared up a little bit when I heard Republican Party Reptile, and not not in a good way. <laughs> and it's it's funny because I don't think that's a bad song, and I listen to it now, and I actually like it. But when, when I heard it at the time, I was just so starved for that big country that I knew and loved that this was so far away from what that was. I mean, we had the American blues slide guitar that opened it up. They even had the audacity to put horns in the song. Like, there are horns in there, and I just thought, you know, oh, I was I was so upset, and I just thought, I, ca- I cannot like this. I, I'm trying so hard to like it, but I just couldn't like it. And thank God for uh, Kiss the Girl Goodbye and Freedom Song. Those two kind of gave me hope for No Place Like Home when I heard those because I still think those two are, are just fantastic songs. I love them both. But Republican Party Reptile, I just thought, oh, you know, what is this? And it, it kind of it, it brings me back to this quote, you know, from Classic Rock magazine that you talked about with the uh, Brzecki quote. And let me just read this real quick because I just recently saw this, too. And this really made it clear to me. It's a quote from Bruce Watson. And he says, um, let me find it here. I need my, I need reading glasses, I think. Okay, it says, uh, when, when Big Country started, Bruce says, we made a conscious effort not to play any blues notes, says Watson. We wouldn't bend strings. Um, and he mimics, it says Watson mimics himself as a young punk, saying, for the first few albums, we're not bending notes, right? Because that's just fucking pish. And he says, <laughs> he says, um, because that way you get into the into the blues territory, and we didn't want to go anywhere near the blues rock thing. So we just played melodies. There was no, there were no guitar solos in the first couple of albums. It's just guitar melodies, and it's usually just a scale, sometimes with a harmony, sometimes with a double track, et cetera, et cetera. So when I read that, I thought, 
you know, thank God this this makes it clear to me that I wasn't crazy. I mean, the early big country albums they typically set out to not be anything like the blues, and that's why I love them so much because you know there were so many blues-based rock bands already, and they stood out so much by not doing that. And then when I heard them being more like a typical traditional blues rock band, I just I was so disappointed, and like the magic had gone a little bit. The album that came out before No Place Like Home was the greatest hits album through a big country. The, th- the thing about this album coming out and then No Place Like Home following along with it that, that amazes me looking back, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, and I'm interested in what you think, but that album did so well for them. I mean, I, I believe No Place Like Home, from what I remember, sold maybe like 30,000 copies, I think. I think that's one total that I remember reading somewhere. I don't know how accurate that is, but... It's probably fairly close. And through a big country, Greatest Hits sold 300,000 copies, as we mentioned. And it's surprising to me that after that, and after the success of that album, maybe it's maybe you could say it's a brave thing, but I think what we've seen is that it was it was much more concocted than that. It's it's It seems surprising to me that they wouldn't at least try to recapture some form of that earlier style of big country. And, and after that success, it would go so far afield of what they had done in the past. I mean, what do you think about that? Yeah, that would be the smart thing to do, wouldn't it? Finally, they have a a hit album again, even if it's just the greatest hits. And uh, just let me say this, you know, Through a Big Country is a great title for a greatest hits album. That's just uh, very clever. And uh, uh, even though perhaps it underpinned the the myth that uh, everything about Big Country that is good has to have Big Country in the title, whether it's the band or their major hit or the greatest hit album. So uh, that's that's always been another thing that sort of hung by them and uh, not necessarily for the better. But uh, I think, uh, you know, this goes back to uh, the band saying after peace in our time, the, the lack of success there and what should we do what should we try we need to get another hit uh, we need to get on the charts we need to at least have a certain level of success here uh, and at the same time the band saying I'm a bit tired of the bagpipe thing you know the press was always writing about bagpipe yep. I, think the, I think the last thing they wanted to do was to play up to that and say you know we, we'll show you we can be more than bagpipes I'm sure that was a big big part of it and, and you know, uh, it's, it's, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it's it's very interesting that you say that because, um, yeah, I think you're right about that. There's no doubt about it. And but what's interesting is that right after that, through a big country album came out, Stewart had a quote that he'd often talked about, and uh, this this would make it seem like he was he would go back to the bagpipe thing just to spite the critics because he says, um, "I do have a very identifiable guitar style, the way I naturally play." Certainly, if you were to look at reviews that were written, you'd expect me to apologize about the way I play the guitar every single time I make a fucking record, and I'm sick to the back teeth of it. And so it's like you could tell he was feeling that as well at the time when he made that comment. So, yeah, you're right. Maybe he maybe that was something that, you know, even though he was saying that he was sick of hearing it, maybe he just decided to say, okay, I'm going to try something different. Maybe, but uh, I think also – that, that, if that's one side of it, then the second side is what's his current interest? And he went through the Stu the Blues Man. <laughs> it didn't last to the end of No Place Like Home, and I, I think that's a good thing personally. Right. And uh, in comes Stu the Folksman, Stu the sort of 
with, with showing interest in country music, showing interest in folk music, uh, and uh, maybe the need to uh, to try something in those veins. And uh, with them searching for an identity anyway, maybe he just allowed those personal leanings to uh, to control what, what would go on. So. Um, it's 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 hard to know what was inside his head, but you see some of the quotes he made at the time, and I will once again go back to the Country Club magazine, and uh, there's the comment that uh, he hasn't done a solo album, but if he did, it would be uh, with folk and country musicians. Mm. So so um, the, already there, you know, when on his own solo, he wouldn't be making big country music. He would be making music with folk musicians, country musicians, not Very necessarily folk or country music, but with folk and country musicians. That that was a good distinction there. So uh, good there's uh, th- yeah. So so maybe that was it. Maybe he used big country as those kind of musicians, and uh, that was the music that was in him at the, that time. And at the same time, there was a very clear direction to try something different. When I think of what the band was going through at the time, and you know what I consider to be the confusion in the band. Uh, I kind of experienced what I think Stewart experienced with this on a much, much smaller scale in my own musical uh, career. And I put career in quotes because it really wasn't a career, but my own musical endeavors, I should say. But pretty much as far as a band that I was with ever got was we we had a production deal with a with a producer. And he wasn't a big name producer. He was just a local guy, but he had a, a great studio in his house. And he wanted to record us for free and he wanted to help us and promote us and try to get us signed and all this stuff. And he liked us or he he claimed that he liked us for what we were as a band. And once we started working with him, it was just a nightmare scenario because he, he wanted to change everything about what we were doing. You know, he, he thought guitar stuff that I played was too, um, he he wanted the guitar basically to be more typical type of guitar you would hear on the radio. He didn't want anything that was out of the ordinary. He thought my lyrics that I would write were too uh, abstract, and he wanted them to be more simplistic. And I tried to convince myself to go along with him for a little while before I finally realized it was totally wrong because I wanted it to work because it was a good opportunity and he had convinced us that you know he knew what he was doing and we we could make this work and basically what happened was you know we recorded some songs that I tried to convince myself were good and I played them to some friends and they were just like these are not good i mean th- this is not what we like about your band and this doesn't even sound like you and it wasn't too long after that that our band broke up i i told the guy you know this was not going to work we could not do this and i fought with him all the time but anyway I feel like Big Country on a much larger level went through something similar to that during this period. And, you know, because one of the things that I've read in this book, this Alan Glenn book, is is some quotes from this guy named Dave Bates who worked with Phonogram and came on board when Big Country was doing the Seer album. And his job was to get Big Country, quote unquote, back on track after the failure, as he put it, of Steeltown, which, which should give you some, you know – insight already as to his mindset if he considered Steeltown a failure. Certainly it was, I guess, a commercial failure for them, but, I mean, he just viewed it as a failure, period. And, you know, he it was his idea, as he says here, to, to send Big Country to America to work with Peter Wolf because he wanted him to have a more of an American appeal. 
and it was he was heavily involved in in I guess getting him to work with Pat Moran in the No Place Like Home sessions. So I, I really believe that he probably had something to do with this as well as you know as well as other record people trying to get Big Country to you know to change what they were and to be something that they they didn't really want to be down deep, but I guess they sort of bought into it to some on some level and and just thought well maybe these people know better than us and we'll go with them but you know mm-hmm. it, it just didn't quite work out at least in my estimation uh, everything i've read from the band and not just while they were making it but after says that uh, the making of that album uh, besides some pressures from the record company that they refused certain songs but they got them on the album anyway yeah they did uh, and uh, so, so they got there, and the, relation, the working relationship with uh, the producer was a good one. Uh, Pat Moran really uh, made it very happy to be in the studio, very much a collaborative producer, and uh, that it's been very happy. And the interesting thing to me is how the band has almost written off Peace in Our Time in lots of interviews, but I've never seen them slag No Place Like Home in the same way. And uh, Stuart yeah. went on record actually defending No Place Like Home, saying, I really like No Place Like Home. And that's really interesting, too, because those are the two albums that I think are the most debated ones, Peace in yeah. Our Time, No Place Like Home. So those are the controversial ones. Those are the ones that didn't quite match people's expectation on some level. But the band is very clear, you know, pro No Place Like Home in hindsight. So so that's very interesting. So how confused they were. I think uh, I think they made something that totally didn't match people's expectations. That that is no debate. But I think it might be the album they felt they felt comfortable making at the time. You know, when I say confused, um I don't mean that they're constantly thinking, "Oh no, what are we doing? What are we what are we doing?" I think they they felt like they were doing the right thing, but we we get back to what you mentioned, what you uh, alluded to, which was Stuart saying that uh, the actual quote here is, um, when I took the original demos of Kansas and Ships to Phonogram, they didn't even want them on the album. It was like there was some bizarre sort of conspiracy plot to undermine everything that we were about. And, you know, yeah, they did get those songs on the album, and they, they did get them on there, and, and Ships was a lot different than the demo, but Kansas was pretty similar. But mm-hmm. I, I think, and, and going back to my own experience... I think what happens when you when you have people telling you things like that, where because I I think Stewart said something about that in Country Club even more, where he thought they were like the best songs he'd done in a long time, and then he got this terrible flack from the record company saying no, you know we don't even want them on the album. Yeah. I think when that kind of thing happens, it starts to creep into your writing process. I mean I know it did for me, and when I started to write songs that in in my head I was thinking, okay these are good songs, but would this producer like this? Would he like this lyric? Maybe I should change it. Or would he like this chord progression? Maybe I should change it. Would he like this guitar part? Maybe I should come up with something different. I, I feel like that had to creep in on some level. I mean, I could be wrong about that. I mean, really, the only people that could confirm that would be the band. And I think yeah. they would I think they would be honest about that at this point and, and say, you know, whether that's true or not. But I, I guess I say confused because when I when I hear certain songs on that album, like of course Leap of Faith, which we'll talk about, and some other things, I just feel like I get a sense that the band is writing for someone else. They're not writing for themselves, and that that's not the case with every song on that album, but with some of them, I know for a band that yeah. that was struggling so hard to reclaim what they felt they had lost with Peace in Our Time, I feel like they were, I, I feel like they could not have possibly been very comfortable at that point, from you know 
I feel like they had to be questioning what they were doing and and wondering how is this going to appeal to the to the masses type of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I read uh, quotes from the band on the performance of No Place Like Home, uh, rarely do I see them talk about the album the way they talk about Peace in Our Time. It's mostly the record company didn't believe in it. We are really disappointed with the record company, mm. and uh, it seems like they had faith in the album, and they, they thought it would do better, and that it was never given a chance. Those are the comments that are prevalent, uh, and that the band would drag up. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, I would actually expect them to be a little harsher in hindsight, but like you said, they've had plenty of chances. We've seen them do it for peace in their time. We haven't quite seen it to the degree no place like home, and that is very interesting to me. Well, well I think peace in our time as well is such a big turning point for them, whereas no place like home is much more of a, a whimper type of album. Whereas peace in our time, they still they still were a very big band, and and that's often looked to as like the end of big country is from a popularity standpoint is peace in our time, and no place like home was just like an aftershock and yeah. I, feel, I feel like that's probably why they concentrate so much on peace in our time because you know no place like home they were they were even when they were recording that album they were you know even though the greatest hits album had been successful they they still you know were not like the biggest band that they had been and i think they were just so crushed by what happened with peace in our time because i think uh they really were setting themselves up to what they hoped would be a really huge stepping stone for them and it just was such a fall you know maybe they should have just been more content to be who they were instead of trying to become the biggest band in the world i mean you can't fault them for trying to become huge anybody would but when you brought up that quote about ian grant thinking well bono has this and sting has this we got to find something for stewart to be the figurehead of i mean to me that's that shows the problem right there i mean you you don't want to you can't calculate those things, and no, you can't. You can't fabricate that kind of thing. I mean, maybe some some people certainly can, but Stewart was never someone who was going to be able to do that. And and when they tried to be that big band that everyone could love, and they tried to bring in the blues stuff and the female backing singers and the keyboards, suddenly not not only did they not attract the people they wanted to attract, but the people who did love them. Many of them, except for us diehards, fell off of uh, liking them too. I'm, I know so many friends who just, at peace in our time, they're like, I'm done with Big Country. And then when No Place Like Home came out, I was like, here, check out this. You know, Check out some of this. And they, oh, that, they would say, that's even worse. I don't want to hear it. One of my friends like, one of my friends who used to love Big Country likened uh, the No Place Like Home album to John Cougar Mellencamp. He said, they sound like John Cougar Mellencamp now. I have a theory of mine which... Uh... You know, everybody seems to pine for the early days and the epics and uh, the Celticness and all of that stuff, the, the grander than life, grand adventure, all of that stuff, that style. Uh, none more than you, probably. You're, you're sort of the <laughs> champion of that side of the country. I know, I am. <laughs> Whereas I, I embrace a lot of areas, but I do see the attraction that that's certainly the big country that I fell in love with originally. Right. And uh, so looking at those two bastard albums if you will peace in their time no place like home um i see them as two sides of the coin if you look at the first couple of albums and you had the what i can call the epic sound there's also the more emotional side the evocative side the more haunting side of big country 
is right. probably a, a good word. And I think with Peace in Our Time, was very polished. I think they polished away the haunting side, the evocativeness side, but they tried to keep some of the trademark sounds. Yes. So it sounds like epic big country in parts, but without the emotion. Right. And no place like home, they strip away the epic side, but actually the haunting is there. I would agree with that completely. Yeah, yeah, and the other side of big country is there. So if you add peace in our time, no place like home, you actually have the two sides of big country. That that Mm. would make a complete big country. So to me, those two albums are different. They explore the two different sides. You have the the epicness, the the sound of early days, but without the feel and the evocativeness. And then you have the emotion side, the evocativeness on no place like home. So. To me, that's a very interesting divide between those two albums. That's a that's an awesome point. I never thought of it that way, but I think you're exactly right because there's no doubt there's a lot of emotion on the No Place Like Home album. I mean, at least on most of it. And I'll say this: yeah, I, I've in preparation for this, and I would encourage everyone else to do this too before they, we go through our track by track listing because it, it might help um, you appreciate it more. But I went back to the No Place Like Home album and I listened to it in in my headphones while I was taking walks and things like that. And I don't know if I don't know if I ever really listened to that album in headphones before. Maybe I have, but I, I couldn't remember. And I was I was actually astonished by all of the uh, the production values that really went into that album. I mean, you know, say what you want about the songs, but th- there was really a lot of old school, big country approaches to that album from a guitar perspective. I mean, a lot of the Celtic guitar stuff isn't quite there, but as far as the overdubs and the cool little pieces and the, the cool little effects, and I, I would just really encourage people to listen to that album in headphones and to just hear all of the things going on. Um, it, it gave me a new appreciation for the production of that album. And uh, yeah, I, I would agree with you, though. That I mean, there's no doubt the epicness is not there. The bigness is really not quite there. It kind of is hinted at on certain songs, but... Um, it's still a very, very well-produced album from a technical level, and and you could really see that a lot of thought and care went into you know every every bit of it. So I mean, you know, just just to set up from my own perspective on the album before we talk about it, it's not my least favorite big country album at all. It's um, well, I don't want to say at all because it's probably second least favorite. <laughs> But um, <laughs> but that doesn't mean that I don't like it. I mean, you know, people always have to take that into consideration. Just like with the B sides, if if a B side didn't make the top ten list, it it doesn't even remotely mean that I don't like the song. And uh, there's not a big country album that I don't really really like, if not love. Um, but uh, I can't say that I love No Place Like Home. But there are songs on there that I love, and there are moments that I love. And uh, in hindsight, when you can when you can take the whole big country catalog now and pick and choose what you want to listen to, um, you know, it, it's a, it's an album that I do listen to a lot, and I I, I do listen to it often and find it interesting. Um, my, my mindset at the time was was so starved for what I wanted from from big country and what you know the template that I wanted from big country, and it's not like I wanted them to repeat exactly what they had done, but I just wanted that sense of grandness again, and and so. That mind, having that mindset was not very conducive to enjoying the album when it came out. But over the years, I've really grown to appreciate it more. And when I when I look at it in the in context of the whole big country catalog, 
it's a it's a nice fit. It's a nice fit, I think, overall. Yeah, that that uh, that sums it up quite nicely. I, I think I like the album a little bit more than you. And we're going to go into the the songs a bit, but uh, I, I always liked it. Uh, when I put it on, I instantly knew this was a better album than Peace in Our Time. Uh, I was okay with them not delivering an epic album like the early days. I didn't really expect it. I would be super surprised if that was the case. Yeah. And uh, and uh, they could basically hand me anything, and I would ju- just be thrilled that they were still making music. Uh, and as soon as I put it on, and Kansas came on, and I knew, wow, you know, this is. The, the best song they've written in you know a long long time this, yeah. this is this is really back on track this is a cornerstone song not just on the album but for big country in general we will talk about the songs track by track next time and uh Svein and i have discussed that, that might actually turn into two podcasts as well because we want to delve into it deeply and and uh and talk about it so hopefully nobody minds an actual trilogy of no place like home podcasts this will be our no place like home trilogy podcast for sure. I think uh, the period between, as as far as a period between two albums go, I think between Peace and Our Time and No Place Like Home is um, the one that needs the most illumination. Okay, so thanks for listening to the show. And again, we really appreciate your feedback. It, it, you know, it's the only reason that we want to keep doing it. I mean, it's a lot of fun for Svein and I just to talk about it amongst ourselves, but um, getting feedback from people and hearing that the show means something to you and that you get something out of it and enjoy it. But anyway, so we'll talk to you guys next time and thanks again. <laughs>